rescue of Lakeside teen Hannah Anderson from her kidnapper, James Baggio, has this exclusive video from the FBI showing her rescue in Idaho. You can see this highlighted area where they're moving around down there two years ago. ABC's Pierre Thomas has a closer look. It was the ugliest of nightmare scenarios, a California house on fire. In the ashes, a shocking discovery. Charred remains, Christina Anderson bound and gagged nearby her eight-year-old son, Ethan. They had been killed. Her daughter, 16-year-old Hannah, was missing. The prime suspect, a trusted family friend, 40-year-old James DiMaggio. I'm begging you to let my daughter go. You've taken everything else. Amber Alerts issued, a massive manhunt launched, and the FBI called in to help. There's no turning back for him. I think he thought uh, that he and Hannah would have a relationship and she would somehow fall in love with him. Six days later, nearly a thousand miles away from San Diego, horseback riders near Cascade, Idaho, report seeing two people matching DiMaggio and Hannah's description. The first positive lead we had. The FBI sent up a jet with a sophisticated long-range camera recording from thousands of feet above. Then a dramatic moment. There at the lake, two people. Look again, it's Hannah and DiMaggio. DiMaggio takes off his shirt and moves toward Hannah. Later, something unexpected. Hannah suddenly starts waving. DiMaggio never notices. He's over to the right, tending the fire. But look, Hannah keeps waving. Is she signaling the aircraft? It was time for the FBI hostage rescue team to act. Assistant FBI Director Jim Yacone oversaw the rescue effort. They essentially start ascending um, the Moorhead Ridge up and around for about three miles. Stealth was the key. Stealth was the key. These photographs of the campsite seen for the first time give a hint of what the FBI believes was a dicey situation. This is DiMaggio's tent. He has a rifle, a handgun, a machete, and look right there, handcuffs. DiMaggio is moving from the campsite to go gather wood, and once he got far enough away, that's when they made their last move, their final approach. Daylight starting to fade, but the airplane's infrared camera captures everything. Hannah starts running, and you can see she's suddenly joined by at least two FBI agents who come into the picture, one of whom grabs her hand. Watch again the moment of freedom. There's that moment of silence. The next thing we hear is uh, shots fired, and we heard uh, one down hard and jackpot. When we heard jackpot, it was an indication we knew that Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest on with me for this podcast. Uh, his name is Gregory Schaefer. Uh, he spent 20 years at the FBI working in different roles. Uh, and since retiring, he's still been involved in the security world. And he's also written a book. So we're going to talk about all of that. Um, uh, Greg, how's it going? It's going very well, John. Thanks for having me on your podcast. It's uh, truly an honor. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on here. Um, I've been following uh, your company online for a few years and um, just sort of keeping up with what you guys are doing. And uh, I think it's phenomenal work. And I, I think it's important to uh, to have guys with your experiences uh, out, you know, retired talking about security and, and sort of teaching people how to think about their security and safety. So you know, we're going to touch on all of that. Um, let's start with uh, where you're from and what motivated you to join the FBI. 
Sure. Um, well, I'm actually from uh, West Virginia. I'm a hillbilly by birth. Um, <laughs> my mom and dad uh, married for over 50 years, and my dad was an IBMer. Worked for IBM, uh, which basically meant in the late 60s and early 70s that we did a lot of relocations. So uh, mm. my dad got transferred quite a bit. I uh, lived in 15 states and wow. a couple foreign countries. I actually went to high school in Paris, France. Uh, got three brothers, uh, all of who are very close still today. And um, basically uh, moving around and everything all the time. About every two or three years, we moved to a different location that made our family very close. So uh, that's kind of my start. Uh, I went to U.S. Coast Guard Academy in 1980. Um, that's where I started, you know, in the whole security world. You know, as a Coast Guard officer, you are a law enforcement officer. It's the only armed force that's not part of the Department of Defense. We'll explain that later. But uh, did a lot of um, counter drug operations down in the Caribbean basin. I was commander of my own patrol boat in the Coast Guard, an 82 foot patrol boat out of Fort Myers Beach, Florida, at the height of the drug wars. Made numerous seizures down there. Worked very closely with the DEA. Basically, uh, most of the drug seizures that we made were based on DEA intelligence. Again, this is in the mid late 80s. And uh, they kind of recruited me uh, from the Coast Guard into DEA. And uh, they you know, kept telling me I should come over to their side. And the more I looked at it, the more appealing it was. So when I was looking into the DEA, I also looked into the FBI, you know, ATF, CIA, <laughs> U.S. Marshals, you name it. I applied to it. And uh, so that's kind of how I got my start with the FBI. I actually uh, applied to them and doing some research on all the federal agencies. The FBI was kind of the one I wanted to go with. And at the same time I'm doing this, my younger brother of three years joins the U.S. Secret Service and became a Secret Service agent. So uh, oh, he no was way. in Secret Service at the same time I was in the FBI. Oh, that's awesome. And did he spend a career there? or? Sure did. He was uh, 20, 25 years in Secret Service. Oh, that's awesome. That's pretty awesome. Um, okay, so that, that's a pretty interesting start. Um, so if I could just <laughs> quickly... Uh, circle back on the DEA part, do they have like a maritime capability or they just sort of work with the Coast Guard? Uh, they do have a, a maritime capability, particularly down in South Florida, but, uh, you know, basically they're investigators and intelligence gatherers. So they use the Coast Guard kind of as an enforcement arm sometimes. So if they have information or intelligence on a big load coming in, they'll use the U.S. Coast Guard to seize that load out at sea versus letting it come to shore and have a chance of losing it. I see. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. Okay, so then, uh, so you get into the FBI, and then, uh, like, uh, talk about your first job. Like, what were you doing initially? Sure, this is uh, 1995. Um, my first uh, office of assignment was the San Francisco Field Division, and I uh, went to San Francisco in 1995 and was placed on a gang and drug task force where I worked alongside uh, both local law enforcement and other federal agencies to include the DEA. So uh, uh, we did gangs and drugs and uh, pretty much all around the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, at the same time, I tried out and um, was able to get on the FBI SWAT team in San Francisco and uh, had a lot of fun. I mean, doing uh, working drugs and gangs as a young FBI agent, you know, basically going to work at 2 p.m. and getting home about 2 a.m., uh, kicking a lot of doors, making a lot of rests, having a lot of fun. It was great, uh, you know, great first office to be in and a great squad to be on. Uh, learned an awful lot from a very experienced street agent that was my training agent. 
<clears throat> being on the SWAT team there, we uh, actually uh, were fortunate enough to have the HRT come out and give us some enhanced training. And that was kind of my first look at the HRT. Now, when you're at Quantico or the FBI Academy, Quantico, Virginia, where the FBI Academy is located, uh, the HRT is also headquartered there. So while at the Academy, you, you see these HRT operators, you know, walking around and, and training at nighttime, flying around in helicopters and doing, you know, late night gunfire exercises and, and CQB exercises. So you hear that and you see that, but you don't, really don't get a good taste for what they do and who they are and that sort of thing. But when they came out to help train the San Francisco SWAT team, that's where I got my first experience with them. And I uh, just really wanted to be a part of that, you know, professional outfit. And uh, so that's my, that was my first four years in the, in the FBI. Okay, so I'm glad you mentioned the, the SWAT thing because this is something that I, I've been kind of curious about. So for the audience, uh, the HRT is the FBI's hostage rescue team. And uh, in essence, they're like an elite, uh, force that will work like domestic uh, hostage rescue situations. Um, you know, for for overseas hostage rescue, we have the SEALs or Delta Force, but for domestic, the HRT takes th- that role. Um, so, uh, so I, I always find this kind of interesting. So the FBI has local SWAT teams that are not HRT. Uh, like, so kind of how do, can you talk about how that works? Sure, absolutely, and you're absolutely correct in your pretty much description of all that as well. There are 56 field offices in the FBI. All 56 field offices have a SWAT team. Now, uh, like the San Francisco SWAT team, I think we had 45, 50 members on that SWAT team. Big city, big SWAT team, good equipment. The Omaha, Nebraska SWAT team probably has about 12 to 14 operators on it. So although we have 56 SWAT teams, some are – large and some are not so large depending on the size of the city and the amount of crime there so every every office of the fbi all 56 have a swat team the hrt is a what they call a tier one uh national security council asset there are only three tier one nsc assets and you've already listed them there's cag also known as delta force there's dev group known as seal team six and there's hrt now the reason HRT was invented is because the military cannot operate on domestic soil uh, because of the Posse Comitatus Act. Basically, unless martial law is declared by the president, U.S. military can't enforce laws on domestic soil in the United States. So uh, they can only operate overseas. So we needed, we, the U.S. government, needed a team that had the skill set to basically take care of very complicated and um, dangerous law enforcement missions, missions such as hostage rescue, um, you know, aircraft assault for hijacked aircraft, things like that. Now, the interesting thing, John, is the genesis of the HRT. You may remember, and your audience may remember, depending on their age, the 1972 Munich Olympics. Munich, Germany, yes. 1972. The PLO took, I believe it was nine Israeli athletes hostage. And it was a, about a two-week standoff. Now, back, at that time in 1972, the Olympics was the most watched television show in the world. This is long before the internet, long before cable television, satellite television. So the Olympics was the most watched event in the world. And the PLO took hostages, 
And during the transfer of the hostages by the terrorists to the airport, the German police attempted a rescue and it failed miserably. Of the 11 hostage takers, I think five were killed and the other six escaped and all nine hostages were killed. It was a complete you know, failure and when it comes to operations. All, all hostages were killed. Now, this is 1972. President Nixon was the president at the time. In 1972, the um, United States was already awarded the Olympics in 1980, Winter Olympics in Lake Placid. And they were also awarded the 1984 Summer Olympic Games in Los Angeles. Knowing this, President Nixon took his National Security Council together and asked the council, gentlemen, what is the U.S. response should an incident like this in Munich happen at Lake Placid or Los Angeles? Now, this is 1972. SEAL Team 6 wasn't even invented yet. CAG, Delta Force, was barely in existence and was so secretive the government disavowed they even existed. And again, because of posse comitatus, they could not operate on domestic soil. So the National Security Council did not have an answer for President Nixon's question. What will we do should we have an incident like this in the United States? So at that point in time, President Nixon told the FBI director to develop a, a tactical team that has the capabilities and skill set to address this time, this type of incident. That was the genesis and the birth of the HRT. And I know uh, one of the founding members of the HRT was uh, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Tommy Norris, who is a Navy SEAL and a, a Medal of Honor recipient uh, from Vietnam. Um, so I know there's there's some sort of uh, connection and lineage to the SEALs um, from the very beginning of HRT, uh, which is, is pretty interesting. Um, okay, so... Uh, you, the first, did you know about HRT before you joined, or did you learn about them after? I had heard of them, but really didn't know much about them. Um, you know, they're they're pretty secretive. They're you know what we call silent professionals. Uh, they like to go into town, do their business, and leave, and give the credit to the local SWAT team. So they don't look for headlines, stuff like that. So they're not very well known outside the FBI. So. Although I did hear of them and read some things in a few books, You'll, you know, you, you see the Vince Flynn's and the Brad Thor's and authors like that mentioned every once in a while. But for the most part, didn't really know a whole lot about them until after I got into the FBI. And the first uh, the first um, generation of operators uh, was actually selected by Danny Colson, who was a first team commander. He's a good friend of mine. And they spent – Upwards to, I think, nine months down at Fort Bragg with the very secretive Delta Force at the time. And uh, Charlie Beckwith, the commander of Delta Force, you know, helped train the first generation of, uh, of operators for the HRT. So they spent many months down at, at Bragg training alongside Delta Force, learning skill sets. And to this day, HRT and CAG enjoy a very good working relationship together. Does HRT also work closely with SEALs, or is it just mainly with CAG? No, no, we work closely with both both teams. Okay. But the genesis of the HRT started actually down in Fort Bragg. Okay, that's fascinating. Okay, very cool. Um, so can you talk about uh, your experience with the HRT selection? 
sure. Um, the good news about the HRT selection is only two weeks long. The bad news is it's two weeks long. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it's it's modeled after Hell Week in buds with the seals. It's nothing like Hell Week as far as the intensity. I mean, nothing, nothing compares to the Navy SEALs five days of, of, of Hell Week. Um, that's the most intensive selection process, you know, on the globe today. But, um, you know, it's uh, the first day is all psychological testing. First of all, you have to be invited to attend to uh, try selection. Um, you put an application in for HRT. The team looks at, you know, your arrest record, your report writing. They talk to your supervisor. They talk to your squad mates. They talk to your uh, special agent in charge of your office. Um, you know, they do a full background on you and what you are like as an FBI agent. And then they invite you to selection. There's only one selection a year. They get about 50 to 60 people show up. And at the end of the two weeks, you have about 12 to 15 who are still standing, uh, sometimes even less. Um, the selection process, again, it's, it's physically and mentally very hard. Uh, you know, you, there's not a lot of sleep involved. You know, you're cold, wet, tired, and miserable and hungry for most of the two weeks. Um, they test all your phobias, whether it's heights, whether it's um, in the water, whether it's dark, cramped spaces. They test your phobias. Um, they put you under extreme stress and duress. And then look at what kind of decisions you make uh, on, under those stresses and duresses. So, you know, they're looking at decision-making processes that you do when you're cold, wet, tired, miserable, and hungry and uh, and a little bit frightened. <laughs> so um, that's kind of the selection process. Every, everything is is graded. Everything is scored. Um, you know, what happens in selection is a very close-kept secret. Um, you know, we don't want to get, you know, word out what we do, uh, how we test things. But uh, – Again, it's, it's incredibly physically demanding, and only about 20% end up making uh, it through the two weeks. And then uh, the thing is with, with HRT selection, just because you make it through the two weeks does not, make, does not mean you make it on the team. Then you have to be selected by the operators. And I'm one of about well, – about half the operators end up going through two selections, and I'm one of those as well. I went through selection in 1997, and I made it through the two weeks. They did not select me. Then I tried again in 1999, made it through the two weeks, and ultimately they did, they did select me. So that's kind of the selection process. So so when you go through that two weeks, so I know uh, for Delta Force, like when you, you go through the sort of physical uh, selection part, but then they have their training course, their, what they call operator training course, and guys can still uh, phase out there. Is it like similar? Correct. Where like okay, yeah, correct. After you get picked up, um, you're not a member of the team yet. You're what we call a not not new operator trainer, uh, trainee, excuse me, and you go through knots new operator training school. So knots is about eight months long, and during that eight months, again, you're not a you're not a member of the HRT. You're not assigned to a team yet. You are kind of in limbo, and that's where you learn the skill sets. And at any point in time in the uh, uh, period, you can fail and get recycled for the next class, which is in the following year. So, um, you know, in my in my selection class, in my generation, we actually had 13 people get picked up, make it to knots, and we lost three. 
So only 10 guys ended up making the team. Now, the other three guys did get recycled, and they ultimately did make the team, but they had to wait a year before that happened. Okay. And is it um, is it sort of typical for, for guys to get into HRT and remain there for the, the rest of the time in the FBI, or, or is it kind of typical for people to bounce around? Well, a lot of guys do remain on the team, but not as an operator. I mean, it's it's hard on the body. It's incredibly hard on the marriage. Uh, you know, it's a young man's game. So, uh, you know, I was an operator for six years and decided to leave and go into, into uh, you know, more into counterterrorism. But a lot of my teammates and generation mates and a lot of people, they'll stay on the team and become, you know, part of their breaching shop or the medic shop or the communication shop or logistics or intel or, you know, things like that. So they'll, they'll, be, a, they'll be part of the support element for HRT, not, not necessarily a shooter anymore. Again, just because, it, you know, you're away from home so much, you're doing intensive training, carrying a lot of weight in your back and shoulders. It's hard on the knees, hard on the back. So, you know, most operators will operate for about anywhere from four to eight years. And about after that, they get a little banged up and, and look for other options after that. Okay. So it, from what I understand, it, it seems like it's, it's similar in, in many ways to the structure of, of like a, you know, SEAL team or, or, or uh, range, uh, special ops, uh, army special ops team. So uh, that's very fascinating. Um, okay. So. Uh, you made it in, um, and, and what was that like? Like finally making it, you know, especially after you had to try two times. What was that like for you? <laughs> well, first and foremost, you know, uh, HRT operators are the finest men that the country has to offer. They're um, they're humble. They're in peak physical condition. They're incredibly intelligent. They think on their feet. They're innovative. Um, they're the nicest guys in the world. They're people you can trust your family and friends with. I mean, I, I just can't say enough good things about them. It's the greatest group of men that uh, I've ever, ever had the experience of working alongside and working with. Um, you get on the team, and you know, I got on the team in 1999, and we had some operations um, that were pretty good. Uh, we did – HRT was very much involved and ended up arresting the D.C. snipers. Um you remember John Mohammed and Lee Boyd Malvo? Yes, I remember two that. Two guys who shut down Washington D.C. in 2000, um, shooting over 13 or shooting 13 people out of the back of their uh, 1996 Caprice Classic, yeah. down in the trunk. Yeah, that uh, that shut down the city. It was an interesting three weeks of my life, and um, the HRT ended up arresting them at a truck stop uh, in uh, Southern Maryland after three weeks. So you know, I was involved in that. Uh, and a few other interesting, you know, domestic operations. We did do some uh, renditions in Africa uh, during that time as well, where um, the U.S. government, mostly the CIA, were able to locate a wanted individual in a foreign country. We would go to that foreign country and grab them, bring them back to the United States, where we would then place them under arrest and they'd stand trial. So we did a few of those. But then, you know, September 11th, 2001 hit, and our world changed. Uh, after that, we got a lot a lot more busy and did a lot more work overseas. 
The um, I remember I actually remember the that DC sniper uh, situation, and um, for some reason I can like distinctly remember someone on a, some news station. I don't I don't remember if it was like CNN or Fox, and um, they were talking about the potential for like a sniper in like a New York City, like Manhattan, let's say, and you know how difficult it would be if they were like in a skyscraper somewhere just like shooting people. Um, but I remember the, the fear that that caused, and, and just for context for the audience, this was before, uh, you know, sort of uh, international, transnational terrorism hit the United States. So uh, it, it was something that we weren't used to, you know, that, that's, that level of uh, the potential for a, an attacker, let's say. Um, so I, I very clearly remember that and remember how nervous people were about it. Um, and I'm so, tell you, John, you, you weren't living in D.C. at the time, were you? No, I was in Manhattan, no. You were in Manhattan, but it, it shut down northern Virginia, southern Maryland, and Washington, mm. D.C. I mean, for three weeks, it, the place was shut down. Uh, even, Starbucks even came out afterwards and said they lost like 75% of their revenue wow. during those three periods. There's, the revenue was down 75%. Um, you know, um, Friday night lights, you know, football games, high school football games are canceled for three weeks. Now, can you imagine being a senior playing football, looking for that scholarship and thinking that your entire season may be at risk, that you can't play, you can't get that scholarship because teach you knuckleheads? I mean, it, it was amazing the effect that it had both physically and mentally on the people in the Washington, D.C. area in those three yeah. weeks. Uh, even Even today, if you wanted to shut down the nation, you know, have 20 cities with two shooters running around. And, 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 and I don't want to get too much in the weeds about this, but the only way that we captured them was because they got cocky and started bragging about things that they did in the past that the FBI had no idea that they did. And that's how the FBI kind of got that scent of who they were. And that's, you know, the FBI gets really good at their job when they have a lead to go on. They chase down that lead and other leads. And basically after they shot the middle schooler, um, in the back, they left a death card in a wood line where they took the shot and left a note that said something to, in regards to, you didn't catch us in Alabama you won't catch us now. And the FBI gets this note where like, like Alabama, what the heck does Alabama have to do with this? Well, they went and looked at all the shooting cases in Alabama that were unsolved and came up with one at a gas station that was very similar in this, in this MO. And they looked at the evidence again, came back with a partial print, ran that partial print through the, through the system and came up with John Mohammed because John Mohammed had served in the military. His prints were on file. So when they identified who he was, they, uh, they realized he used to live in Seattle, or they thought that he still lived there. They went to Seattle and found his old house with an old oak tree stump in the backyard that was used as a target for target practice. They dug out a few slugs out of the oak tree, and the slugs were from an AR-15, and the ballistics matched the rounds being fired in the Washington, D.C. metro area. So they knew then we have our guy. It's John Mohammed. Now, after we have a name and a face, it's just a matter of time before we catch them. So that's how we caught the D.C. snipers. It was based on the fact that they got cocky and started bragging about crimes they committed that beforehand the FBI knew nothing about. That's crazy. 
that's crazy. Yeah, I remember seeing that. I, I think he was in the military, and and it was a father son combo, right? That was that was how they were doing it. Well, no, um, Lee Boy Marvel wasn't a son, kind of more of like an adopted son, but they okay, were okay. just acquaintances. Yeah, but they weren't related. I see. Okay. Yeah, that's crazy stuff, man. <laughs> that's fucking crazy. Okay, so um, so where were you on nine eleven? I was on HRT. We were gearing up uh, in our what we call cages. It's where we kept all our gear. Um, and training starts at 9 o'clock. So we're throwing our vest on, loading our magazines, getting ready to walk down to the Tactical Firearm Training Center, our big shoot house. And uh, all of a sudden, the, basically, the intercom goes off the line, goes off, says all operators report to the classroom. All operators report to the classroom. And we get to the classroom. First plane had already hit, and about uh, 10, eight, 10 minutes after we sat down watching the first plane, second plane hit, and we knew right away, all right, this is definitely intentional. This was not an accident, and um, we watched uh, the buildings collapse um, you know, as we're sitting on the HRT compound, and obviously we're placed on immediate standby. Nobody goes home. Um, we sit in our bags waiting for the word to go do something somewhere. And, um, you know, and very, very soon thereafter, um, you know, we're in Afghanistan looking for Osama bin Laden in the caves of Tora Bora. So did you guys know right away that there was a, a sort of a, an Al-Qaeda connection? Well, not even, not even sooner than anybody else. I mean, uh, I think President George Bush went on uh, TV either that night or soon thereafter and I think it was pretty quickly learned that it was an Al-Qaeda connection. So um, you know, we, we knew shortly before the nation knew uh, when he went on national television and announced it. But it was obviously terrorism, and Al-Qaeda was, was already you know, up on our side. They had already done things in the Philippines, Indonesia, Pakistan, you know, overseas. And so we knew that Al-Qaeda was on the radar, but uh, didn't know they had the capabilities of organization and able to carry out an attack like that in the, in the United States. Before we continue, I'd like to talk to you about this week's sponsor, Four Patriots. Drought, inflation, and even new policies are pushing America's food supply near its breaking point. That's why survival food is more important than ever. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling Four Patriot survival food kits. It's not ordinary food. We're talking good for 25 years survival food handpicked right in a family-owned facility in the USA and giving jobs to over 200 Americans. The kits are compact, sturdy, water-resistant, and stack easily. They have different delicious breakfast, lunch, and dinners. You can make these meals in less than 20 minutes. Just add boiling water, simmer, and serve. And right now, you can go to 4 and use the code RECON to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in the store including this three-month survival kit. You'll get their famous guarantee for an entire year after your order, plus free shipping on orders over $97. They're called Four Patriots because a portion of every sale is donated to charities who support our veterans and their families. Just go to 4 and use the code RECON to get 10% off. That's 4 Use the code RECON. Start building your own stockpile today. 
Okay. So, you know, one thing that uh, people may not be aware of uh, when it comes to HRT is that HRT actually deploys to Afghanistan and Iraq and had gone on raids with uh, special operations units. Um, can you talk about some of that and, and why the Bureau would be sending, you know, teams of their elite uh, operators over there? Sure. We were also uh, in Yemen uh, immediately after the USS Cole was bombed. So whenever Americans are killed or injured overseas or U.S. properties destroyed overseas by terrorists or anything else, the FBI gets can have jurisdiction. And then we go to the foreign country at the request of the foreign country and assist them in apprehending those responsible. So, um, you know, the Marine Corps barracks in Beirut, for example, the 1990 eight embassy bombings in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Nairobi, Kenya, the FBI and the HRT and FBI op- and FBI agents were over there looking for those responsible for those embassy bombings in 1998, again, uh, associated with, with al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Um, in fact, one of the reasons why we went overseas to look for Osama bin Laden with special forces is because of those 1998 bombings in Nairobi, Kenya, and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. We knew that al-Qaeda did it. We knew that Osama bin Laden was behind it. And because of those two bombings, Osama bin Laden was an indicted subject in the Eastern District of New York. He was also an indicted subject on the 1993 attempted bombing the World Trade Center. So Osama bin Laden was an indicted subject in the United States. So if he was ever arrested anywhere, he could be brought to the United States to stay on trial. Okay, that's important to know. That's what gives the FBI its ability to work overseas. Had Osama bin Laden been found in the caves of Tora Bora, the HRT needed to be there for a couple of reasons. It's all procedural courtroom type reasons that we need to be there. As an indicted subject, we would have to arrest him and place all the intelligence that we collected, all the cell phones, all the laptops, all the hard drives, all the paperwork, all the files would have to be placed in FBI custody. The chain of custody have to be maintained by an FBI agent. Then all the evidence and the individual had to need to be transported to the United States where we'd hand them over you know, to uh, our FBI you know, colleagues there who would then fingerprint them, process them and then put him in a system where he would stand trial. During that entire time, all the evidence collected would be under the control of an FBI agent, i.e. an HRT operator. A SEAL person or a Delta Force person will never go into a court, raise their right hand, you know, swear under oath, and testify about something that they did overseas. They can't do that. They never will do that. So, again, they cannot operate on domestic soil and they'll never go into court of law to testify. So it's one of the reasons, again, why the, why the HRT was invented. They needed that capability overseas and domestically, but they needed it for courtroom procedural requirements. Does that make sense to you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it's, it's sort of, it's, it's fascinating stuff, um, uh, you know, because it's, it, it, the way the U.S. works, it isn't like, uh, you know, uh, we follow the rule of law, right? Even when it comes to terrorism, so uh, all those procedures and things, it has to be followed. 
And I, right. I just find that so fascinating that uh, things work that, that way, you know. And one of the first missions that HRT had when working with those units overseas was teaching them how to do what we call SSEs, hmm. sensitive site exploitation. How do you collect evidence? How do you bag it and tag it? How do you make it so it's going to be effective and worthwhile to those intelligence people once they get it on their hands? You can't just throw it all in a bag and say, hey, we got this out of this room. It, it needs to be, okay, it was on this shelf near this bed where this guy slept. You know, It was in this building, on this side of the building. So how you bag it and tag it is critical for the intelligence analysts to get a good picture of what they're looking at and be able to connect those dots with the information they glean from that intelligence. So, so one of the first missions the HRT had was teaching these tier one units how to collect and bag and tag this evidence. That's very fascinating. Um, so, and the, the FBI is sort of known for being very meticulous and, and great investigators. Um, but that's not something that I was aware of. I, I knew that these these tier one units conducted SSE, um, and you know it, it's been brought to the big screen in films about the uh, the Bin Laden raid, uh, mm-hmm. where you know after they they killed who they killed and, and took control of the the house, uh, you know you see them conducting SSE, right? Um, Correct. But I was not aware that the uh, HRT played a role in, in or, or the lead role in, in teaching them that. It's very fascinating. Absolutely. Okay, so um, uh, did you uh, deploy uh, into Afghanistan or Iraq during your time in HRT? Yeah, I did, I did two tours in Iraq. I never made it to Afghanistan. Okay. Okay, and... 2003 and 2004. And I, I'm not sure, like, how much you can talk about it, but... Uh, when you're there, are you basically attached to like a, a special mission unit the entire time kind of situation or? Uh, yes and no. Um, in 2003, we definitely were because there was no other FBI agents really um, in country at that time because it was so early on. Um, but after things settled down, they brought in FBI agents to uh, to do investigations because – Again, with this whole war crimes thing, um, they initially wanted to indict Saddam Hussein for war crimes and bring him to trial in the United States or in The Hague at the, uh, at the world court there. So they brought an FBI agent to help with the investigation of collecting evidence of WMDs, collecting evidence of war crimes that Saddam Hussein committed. Um, but until those agents got there, uh, the HRT was the only FBI in town. And early on in that, after the invasion, we were assigned to the special mission units there to hunt down and look for the, you know, the deck of cards, top 52. So my first tour there, we were running and gunning out every night uh, with special mission units looking for those top 52. Um, By 2004, my second tour there, uh, we did a lot of force protection for FBI agents who were questioning a lot of people at Abu, Abu Ghraib prison. I mean, I'm sure everybody knows who, where Abu Ghraib was, very famous prison in, in Baghdad, where the U.S. military, when they captured suspected terrorists, uh, they put, put them in Abu Ghraib, and that's where the FBI agents would interrogate them and question them. And we made sure that they just got there safely by you know taking them for about a, about a half-hour drive outside the city. So it was 
it was pretty dangerous and treacherous because of the IEDs and attacks on that road that took you out to Abu Ghraib. So we did a force protection for them. And then at nighttime, we'd hook up with the special mission units and continue our work in looking for those that uh, the intelligence community were looking for, to include uh, Saddam Hussein. Yeah, I remember, I forget exactly when um, I learned that the HRT was actually uh, in the war zones over there. Uh, and, and I thought that was such a, an interesting thing. Um, okay, so... Well, in fact, too, an interesting uh, uh, point that most of your listeners probably aren't aware of either is once Saddam Hussein was captured, uh, you know, he was placed in Camp Cropper for about nine months before he was finally put to death mm-hmm. by the Iraqis. That nine months, he sat and was questioned by an FBI agent. His name is George Pirro, P-I-R-O. And there is a great 60 Minutes interview he did God, probably 10, 12 years ago of his time sitting with Saddam Hussein. Everybody thought it was – even Saddam Hussein thought that uh, George Perry was a senior-ranking CIA official. Well, George Perry was not CIA. He wasn't senior-ranking. He was, your t- he was a, you know, a low, not a low-level, but he was your typical FBI agent who spoke the language, was very intelligent. And for nine months, he was the only person who spoke to Saddam Hussein. Sat down and smoked cigars with him. They drank oh, no whiskey way. together, and they discussed uh, his family, his his weapons of mass destruction. And for nine months, George sat down every day with Saddam Hussein. And again, he did a great sixty minutes interview. I highly recommend people watching, and it gives you good insight on uh, on what Saddam was thinking, how he was thinking, and why he did the things he did. Yeah, that's very fascinating. That's very fascinating. Okay. Um, all right. So your your final trip over there was in two thousand four. You said. Correct. And are you able to talk about the length of your deployments there? Uh, they were anywhere from three to four months long. Okay. You know, we uh, we we spent the same amount of time there as the special mission units did. Basically, we do a couple months work up with them. We deploy with them. And then we come back with them. And, uh, you know, fortunately for us, um, the special mission units only did three to four month deployments, whereas your typical Marine Army guy, God love him, would do 12 to 15, even 18 oh, month yeah. deployments over there. So we were, we were lucky in that our deployments were, were fairly short, but we had we did months of work up beforehand. Yeah, I know, like, typically the special operations that, uh, you know, that's kind of the like what people want to hear about and talk about. But, um, the, you know, those young infantry guys over there for 15 months, 16 months, like, like that yeah. was a very difficult job. Uh, Absolutely. And, and they Absolutely. saw a ton of combat, yeah. Yep. Yeah, they sure did. And look at the, the toll that took on marriages and families and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I, like, I, I remember, uh, I, I don't remember if it was a documentary. It was probably a documentary. And, and this infantry guy, I don't remember if he was Army or Marines, but he was talking about how they were there f- for a 12-month rotation, and then, like, a few, like, maybe six weeks before they were supposed to leave, they get an order that they have to extend for, like, another four or five months. Um, yep, And yep. that, that got to be sort of devastating for them, for the families, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that, that's called taking the wind out of your sails. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay, so you, uh, after your deployment uh, in 2004, you returned home. Uh, and then you stayed at HRT for another year or so? That's correct. Okay, so then 
when you reach the point that you decide that you want to sort of leave the operational side uh, as an operator, like, does it work as like there's a contract or like do you just say like, you know, I think I'm done sort of operating in HRT? You pretty much say you're done. And then uh, because I spent, uh, what was it, six years on a team, um, pretty much I had my choice of where I wanted to go. Uh, they're, they're very good about, you know, they, they know the toll it takes on your body, the toll it takes on your family and your marriage. Mm-hmm. So the HRT and the FBI are very good about, you know, you do your time on the team, they'll take care of you and, and, and send you where you want to go. So what I chose to do was, um, you know, I went from the, 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 the at sea level, ground level view of, of counterterrorism to the National Counterterrorism Center, where I had a 50,000-foot view of counterterrorism worldwide, and uh, went to the NCTC, uh, again, located in McLean, Virginia, just down the road from CIA headquarters. It was newly established. It was just opened, and I was one of the first people to work in the National Counterterrorism Center, where all the intelligence collection, all the intelligent uh, community, you know, all 60, 80 members were under one roof, because, you know, obviously, the... 9-11 incident was a direct result of the intelligence community having all the puzzle pieces, but not able to put the puzzle pieces together because the intelligence community weren't communicating with one another. Right. You know? NYPD didn't talk to, you know, California state police who didn't talk to the FBI in Minneapolis, who didn't talk to the FBI in Phoenix, who didn't talk to the FBI here or the, or the DEA there. I mean, it's all interconnected. So, the National Counterterrorism Center brought all these players together, brought all these organizations together, put them under one roof and said, work well with others, start sharing information. And it worked because as a result, we haven't had a significant terrorist event in America since 9-11. And I think a huge result of that is because of the National Counterterrorism Center. So I went there and was put in charge of all FBI investigations in Southeast Asia. So that included the Bali bombing in Indonesia, um, bombings and kidnappings in the Philippines. So I had Australia, Indonesia, Thailand, uh, Philippines, that whole area of the world when it came to counterterrorism. I, I managed and led the investigations of, of, of terrorism uh, in that area of the world for the FBI. I did that for two years. Yeah, and I, I think that's just something generally people don't understand. The public doesn't really understand that um, uh, the sort of failure to share information between the agencies, uh, in in part, is is what led to the nine eleven attacks. And um, uh, I, I mean, you obviously you just stated it, but you know, after that, those barriers were broken down. It became a more cohesive and effective uh, intelligence apparatus. Uh, when it came to counterterrorism, um, and another thing I think people may not be very aware of is the um, the connections between Al Qaeda and uh, some of these uh, terrorist groups, and Southeast Asia, the Philippines, uh, uh, and, and different countries in that region. Exactly. You know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was in the Philippines just prior to 9-11. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, Al-Qaeda was all over the globe at the time, and they used the Philippines as a, a training ground and a recruiting ground as well. So, um, and, and again, that big uh, Bali bombing of the nightclub that killed um, 202 people, I believe, uh, 80 of which, 80-some plus more, were Australians, and I think five Americans were killed there. 
So I think that's a huge attack when you kill that many people in a, in a nightclub bombing. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, 9-11 was a direct result of the intelligence communities that working alongside each other. And uh, the NCTC was a place where they brought them all together to solve that issue. So, again, I spent two years there really learning, again, counterterrorism from a global perspective, how something that happens in the Philippines is connected to something that happens in Pakistan which is connected to something in Afghanistan and so on and so forth. So it, it's just it was eye-opening to see, um, you know, the, the counterterrorism from that perspective, that 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 you know overview and how things that happen in one part of the world have a direct impact on another part of the world. So after two years there, uh, I was um, offered uh, pretty much uh, uh, again an assignment of my choice, and I chose Dallas, Texas. So I came to the Dallas field office and uh, worked as a JTTF, Joint Terrorism Task Force Supervisor, here in Dallas. I did that for four years. Um, during that time, the Dallas field office, or the Dallas, um, hosted both the 2011 Super Bowl and the 2010 NBA uh, All-Star Game. At the same time, the Rangers were in the World Series in 2010 and 2011. We have... You know, Texas Motor Speedway for NASCAR. We have two PGA events here and multiple other large events that are targets for terrorism. So the JTTF in Dallas was a very busy place, and I was responsible for designing the security for all these large events, again, including the 2011 Super Bowl. So I did that for four years. Um, had a great time uh, here in Dallas. Um, wasn't kicking in a lot of doors because I was doing terrorism, but still enjoyed it. And after four years in Dallas, I got that itch to go somewhere else. So um, I put in for uh, a position called Legal Attaché. Short-term name for that is Legat. So I was a Legal Attaché. I was a Legat in Budapest, Hungary from 2011 to 2014. And after my Legal Attaché stint in Budapest, uh, I had one more left in the, one more year left in the Bureau. I had to leave Budapest. It's a three-year assignment. Um, they asked me where I wanted to go and, uh, I said, I want to go back to Dallas and I wanted to come back to Dallas as a door kicker. So they put me back on a gang task force, a violent crime, uh, major offender VCMO squad called violent crime, major offender, put me on one of those task forces and I wasn't a supervisor. I wasn't the boss. I was just a regular street agent. Once again, kicking in doors, making arrests and using my HRT experience to train up my squad and how to best and safely make arrests. So we had a great time. My last year in the Bureau was very similar to my first year in the Bureau, which was, again, putting putting bad people in jail. It was great. I loved every minute of it. So the, that last year, um, in, a, in a job like that, is that where there would be a lot of sort of FBI SWAT involvement? Yeah, there, uh, definitely. We had a lot of investigations where if we thought our squad couldn't do it or there was, you know, an, an, an an increased risk because of, you know, firepower and, and violence that people that we were chasing had exhibited, then we would use a SWAT team to assist us in making the arrests. But for the most part, our squad did it. We were really good and trained up and, and, uh, we felt like we didn't need a SWAT team that we could do it effectively and safely. So we wouldn't request their, um, assistance unless we really thought it was needed. Okay. And uh, so quickly, just to circle back on your, your time in Budapest, was that working in a, a counterterrorism role? No, uh, as a legal attache, 
Uh, most U.S. embassies around the world have uh, an FBI agent in them mm-hmm. uh, called a legal attache. Um, I was there along with five, with five other agents who were on a task force called a Budapest Organized Crime Task Force. Uh, they were under my purview as well. Uh, because of the Russian organized crime that was pretty extensive in Budapest, the, um, the host nation, Hungary, allowed us to bring in five agents to help their national police um, investigate and take down Russian organized crime. Um, so uh, if there was terrorism there, uh, we would help deal with that. But the role of the legal attache is to work with the local police in, you know, in their investigations that had any kind of connection to the United States. So, um, you know, pretty much any major crime syndicate will do money laundering of some sort or where money will be transferred through a U.S. bank, whether it's Citibank, whether it's Bank of America, whether it's Chase Bank. So once one penny runs through any of those accounts of any of those banks, that gives the United States jurisdictional authority to investigate. So that's how the FBI operates overseas with foreign nations is, you know, we look at the fact that, you know, undoubtedly there is money running through U.S. banks that gives us some sort of jurisdictional authority. Therefore, we can work alongside you and assist you in any way we can. So we have no arrest authority overseas. We strictly work with the local authorities and let them do all the arrests. And uh, again, just work with them in helping them and assist them in their investigations that have some kind of connection to the United States. Okay. Okay. So then, so you, you finish your final year, uh, down in Texas. Um, and are you already thinking about, you know, what's next for you? Like, how does that, how is that whole process? Yeah. At the 20 year mark, you know, um, with, with the FBI, if you're over the age of 50 and you have 20 years in the bureau, you can retire with your full pension. And I was 53, I believe. So I could retire. I could have stayed in for uh, another four or five, six years until mandatory retirement at 57. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd already spent 11 years in the Coast Guard, 20 years in the FBI, 31 years of government service. I was kind of uh, looking forward to see what the next adventure would hold. So, of course, I talked over my wife. Uh, we decided to retire in 2020. I'm sorry, um, in 2015 after 20 years. And... Uh, you know, talked to a lot of people beforehand, people who, you know, got roles as, you know, chief security officers at uh, at, at the Wynn uh, Win Casino, former HRT guy, uh, head of security for Schneider Trucking, former HRT guy, uh, head of security for uh, Walmart, retired FBI guy. So, you know, there's a, there's a huge network of retired FBI, retired HRT guys out there that are in the corporate world as chief, chief security officers and that sort of thing. So there's that realm you can take, and there's also a large percentage of retired FBI and HRT people who opened up their own security business. So I decided to go the route of trying to open my own security business. So I started Schaefer Security Group, and uh, and I've been trying to grow that ever since my retirement in 2015. Okay, and so what exactly are some of the services that you offer with uh, Schaefer Security Group? Well, uh, as a result of all the security planning I did for multiple large-scale events, such as the Super Bowl, NBA All-Star Game, World Championships, World Series, that sort of thing, I have a, a niche 
uh, you know, skill sets that's very rare, and that is designing security for large-scale events. So we do a lot of special event security planning and operations. I have at my disposal about 30 guys I can call upon to help me do security for, you know, the VIPs that are in attendance. You know, of course, like the Super Bowl, you have, you know, just thousands of police officers and private security there. But there's always that area that needs to be really tightly controlled. I would, uh, what I would do now with my company is tightly control that one area that's that's most most at risk. So we do special event security planning. Um, we do some executive protection. We do um, a lot of active shooter response training and tactical training. Um, and uh, I wrote a book in 2019 called Stay Safe. Security Secrets for Today's Dangerous World. Uh, I wrote that book. It's, it's done fairly well, and I do a lot of public speaking uh, on that book. So corporations will hire me to come in, talk to their employees, talk to the board of directors, and basically teach them not only how to be safe, but how to respond to active shooters, what they can do to you know, mitigate threats, how do you recognize pre-incident indicators of violence, um, you know, basically how to, how to maintain good situation awareness, how to have that survival mindset and, and try to teach them, you know, and empower them on how to make their lives safer in, in today's more dangerous world. So I think that's a, a fascinating uh, point that you just brought up about uh, sort of the, the, the pre-indicators for a violent uh, situation uh, coming up. Uh, how important is that in, in uh, situational awareness and, and being able to prevent or, or being able to get yourself to safety in, say, like an active shooter situation? Well, you know, it's key. Um, if you're able to avoid the danger or recognize the danger before it happens, that puts you one step in front of everybody else. You know, we're so uh, involved in our cell phones and so involved with our kids if they're with and stuff like that that we don't pay attention to what's happening around us and people get caught unaware of what's happening around them and as a result put themselves in situations that you know can sometimes be very dangerous or very violent um you know things like uh you know you, you do all the right things and, and you and you have good situational awareness and you have that survival mindset but you're in the wrong place at the wrong time you know you're you're in that walmart in el paso texas on a bright saturday afternoon and all of a sudden shots ring out well you need to know that 78% of active shooters come to the front door of any business, whether it's a school, a hospital, or a Walmart. So if 78% of the shooters come to the front door and you hear shots ring out, which way are you going to run? Out the front door or out the back door? Well, you need to run out the back door. The average distance that an active shooter kills his victims is less than five feet. Not five yards, John, five feet. Those that cower under the desk, those that hide behind the cash register or hide underneath the church pews or those that run into a closet, those are the ones that get shot and killed. So your first course of action is always to run, create distance from you and the shooter. The hit rate, John, on a moving target with a man with a handgun is 4%. Mm. 4%. That means the miss rate is 96% by doing one thing, running. And that's true if somebody has a gun to your face asking for your wallet on a, on a dark street in New York. You throw the wallet in the ground. When he looks at it or goes to bend, bend, bend over and pick it up, you run. He has a 4% chance of hitting you. If you stay there and stand there, he's got pretty much a 100% chance of hitting you. So with five feet as the average distance and a 4% hit rate, 
you need to know what you should do should you be caught in that situation where shots are ringing out. And another thing we do, we hear shots, John, and most people will rationalize it away. They think it can't be shots. It, it just can't be gunfire. Gunfire is dangerous, and I don't want I don't want to be in danger. So people will rationalize their fears away and say, oh, that must have been fireworks or it was a car backfiring. They will think of a thousand things before they think it's gunfire. And, and that's where mindset comes in. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. So <clears throat> I'm from New York. Um, and when I was a teenager, the crime was pretty high. Uh, it, it's it for a long time. Uh, the, the the violence was was fairly low, and it <clears throat> sort of dropped to record lows. And then, in recent years, it's sort of spiked again. Um, so the having situational awareness is just sort of like a a way to survive in New York City, right? Um, and uh, for me, like. Like you just mentioned, where people will hear uh, p- potentially hear a gunshot and then just assume it's something else. I kind of do the opposite. Like if I hear something like a loud bang, my first thought is, "Is that a gunshot?" And then, "Oh, it's probably not." But but th- that's after I can sort of determine that it was just a, a normal sound. And um, right. you know, like for years, I worked uh, in the city, so I would commute on the subway every day, and. Um, you know the the um, the amount of people who would have their heads buried in their phone or on a tablet or like reading something like during a stretch of time where there's you know a a, a mentally ill person who is slashing people in the face on the subway like there's periods of time where things like that are happening and people are just completely oblivious uh to to uh you know their situation around them and it's it's really remarkable to to kind of see it Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, having good situational awareness, it's not difficult. It, it really is an easy thing to do, but it's a conscious decision and, and people just don't want, and, and it's not paranoia either. I mean, people, I, you know, people always ask me, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to live my life, you know, paranoid. It's not paranoia. It's relaxed awareness. It's just knowing who and what is happening around you. You know, it, like you said, it's putting that phone down, putting that book down on the subway and just looking around you, watching people around you. You'll be able to pick up pre-incident indicators of violence. People will give off signals before they do a violent attack. And you don't want to be there when it happens. And, and um, you know, having that situational awareness, you know, it's the one thing you can do to ensure your safety and those, those around you. Again, it's simple to do, but it's hard to continue to do. It's hard, it's hard to make it a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that I do, uh, if I'm ever on the subway, I, I don't ride the subway as much these days. But if I ever do, um, you know, maybe I'm watching something on my phone or, or reading something, and um, when the train stops and the doors open on a stop, I just pay attention to who's getting on. And if I see right. someone kind of fidgety or like, you know, their eyes are darting around, like, and they're, they're moving constantly then I'm going to pay, pay attention to that person a little bit more. Sure. And it, But if I don't see anything like that, when the door is closed and the train moves again, I'll just sort of look around one more time. And if I don't see anything that's sort of out of place, I'll just go back to, you know, whatever I was doing. No, that, that's, that's, that's the way to do it. That's, that's exactly the right methodology. Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> So if, if anyone is uh, interested in, um, 
you know, potentially booking you for speaking engagement or, or interested in, in talking to you about uh, a security uh, situation, uh, where can they do that? Well, you can uh, go to my website. It's SchaeferSecurityGroup.com. The trick is to spell Schaefer correctly. It's S-H-A-F-F-E-R, SchaeferSecurityGroup.com. There is a contact us button on there where you can send a request for information. Um, you can get my book, Stay Safe, Security Secrets for Today's Dangerous World, for $14.99 on Amazon. And uh, on the Amazon link, there's also a way to contact me. Um, and then lastly, is GregSchaeferSpeaks.com. And Greg is G-R-E-G, Schaefer, S-H-A-F-F-E-R, Speaks, S-P-E-A-K-S. Dot com, and that's to book me for you know, presentations or, or training programs. So I'd be happy to talk to anybody. And um, again, I appreciate the time you've given me here today, John. It, it, was, it was great talking with you. Thank you for letting me share a little bit of my life. I hope I didn't bore your listeners too much. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, not at all. And, and it, was, it was great to have you on here. I, I appreciate you. Uh, uh, taking the time to do this. I know you're pretty busy. Um, and are you on social media as well for the audience? Yes. Yes. Schaefer Security Group is on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All right. Phenomenal. So, um, yeah, it was it was great having you on here. Um, uh, you know, I, I appreciate uh, everything that you've done uh, in your service in the Coast Guard and FBI. Um you know the the FBI has kind of gotten a bad rap with in, in recent years in, in some areas. Uh, so you know I know there's there's good men and women who work there, um, and and I uh, I hope to be able to highlight some of those stories of, of good people doing good work. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I really do, and you're absolutely right. The FBI's definitely um, changed over the last few years since I retired. Um, you know, and your basic street agent, I do believe, is still your patriotic American, you know, who wants to do nothing more than put bad people in prison right. and keep America safe. Uh, it, uh, the upper echelons, the FBI, have been bastardized and been corrupted, but uh, hopefully that'll be cleansed and changed soon, and that the reputation of the FBI will once again be renewed as the premier law enforcement agency of the world. Because I know when I served in there. From 1995 to 2015, it was considered the preeminent law enforcement agency in the world, the best of what we do. I was very proud to be an FBI agent. And today, and you know, I can say this, uh, along with a lot of other retired agents I talked to, that we are embarrassed and that we are enraged at what the FBI has become in the last two or three years. But we are all hoping and praying that, uh, again, changes will be made here soon to bring the FBI back to uh, what it's supposed to be. And that is a apolitical law enforcement arm, the best in the world at putting bad guys in prison.